Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action, we've got a powerful helping hand sitting in for me as he does every three months. I first interviewed Peterson Toscano about 10 years ago, and you can find a second visit with him as well on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Over the past couple of years, climate change has come to the fore as a concern for Peterson, hence his work at Citizens Climate Radio. And that's fortunate for you, as you can get to hear some of the fruits of Peterson Toscano's tremendously creative and insightful exploration of our planet's health. We've called this quarter's installment of Citizens Climate Radio, Storyteller, Advocate, or Rebel. As we pass control of the horizontal and the vertical over to Peterson Toscano. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's great to be back hosting Spirit in Action. Today, you will meet author Aaron Thier. His novel, Mystery Eternity, is weird, funny, thoughtful, and will literally change the way you see the world. I also introduce you to Eileen Flanagan. Eileen outlines four different roles people take when involved in change movements. Regardless of the issue, these four roles are essential. Eileen tells us about advocates, rebels, organizers, and helpers. Which of these roles have you taken on in your own life and work? We will also have a special report from the future. In a world obsessed with celebrity, I wonder who will be the celebrities of the future? But first, I have two people I want you to meet. Dr. Hugh Seeley lives in the Caribbean. He has been on the front lines of climate change. In fact, he has had a pretty significant role in creating climate solutions. As an engineer, Dr. Seeley looks for both practical and creative ways to address problems. You will also meet Audia Samba Kui. Audia told me that some people may think of her as insignificant in the world, a young black woman. But at age 14, she has already taken on big issues, including pollution. I hope you enjoyed today's program. Many young people have been asked the age-old question, what are you going to be when you grow up? Chances are most people are not doing what they said they would do when they were five years old. If so, we would have a glut of firemen, princesses, wizards, and animal doctors. I wonder about the factors that lead us to choose the professions we take on. How does a minor interest become a lifelong career? And how do lifelong passions actually choose us? 
On today's show, I speak with a college professor with significant accomplishments under his belt. I also speak with a 14-year-old high school student who is just beginning to find her way in the world. They both share a passion to address climate change. In particular, they care about the marginalized people who are affected by global warming. Meet Dr. Hugh Seeley. Originally from Barbados, Dr. Seeley now lives in Grenada. He is a professor in the Department of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at St. George's University in Grenada. As a young adult in the early 1980s, he traveled far from his Caribbean home to a much colder northern climate in order to study chemical engineering. The Canadian winter came as a shock to him. I remember the, the first winter that we had in Montreal when I was there. I went outside and I was, I was so excited that I had my hands up and I was catching the snowflakes. And then four months later, I was, I was fed up with snow. Um, I never wanted to see another snowflake again. The sidewalk were full of the snow after the snowplows pushed it off the roads and I had to buy bigger and bigger boots to get to school. Hugh Seeley survived that winter and several more in his pursuit of advanced degrees. He also carved out a path for himself and his interest. While working on his chemical engineering degree as an undergraduate, he had a revelation that shaped his career for the next 30 years. I would say that the euphoria moment hit me, well, at McGill in Montreal, when I was doing a, an air pollution course, and I was told by the professor that we as engineers should just build the stacks, the, the chimneys higher and higher, and, and dilution was, was the solution to the problem. The epiphany hit me that, that engineers have a responsibility um, towards the environment. That we're the ones that build the things that either pollute the environment or can clean it up. And, and therefore I resolved at, at that point to be an engineer, but to have an environmental slant. Engineers have a responsibility to the environment. Dr. Hugh Seeley took that responsibility seriously. He moved to the UK to continue his studies. There, he earned a master's degree in environmental pollution science and then a PhD in environmental science. And then I was given a, a tremendous opportunity by the, by the government of Barbados um, at a relatively young age to head up the environmental protection division of the, of the government. That just shaped my career from, from there on in. Dr. Seeley has used his skills and passions as an environmental engineer to aid island nations. He assisted in the National Sustainable Development Policy for Barbados. He has also worked on national energy policies for St. Lucia, Dominica, and Grenada. He has taken on coastal water quality standards and legislation. He is currently working on geothermal legislation and regulation for Grenada. Back in episode 9, Eileen Flanagan talked about the roles we can take as change agents. Dr. Seeley serves as an advocate. He works within a system to bring about meaningful and lasting changes. His work has had international impacts. He's been active in the UN Framework on Climate Change. As a member of the Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, he and his colleagues have overseen funds collected through a carbon market. They then use the income for development projects around the world. 
The process helps most vulnerable nations and people respond to climate change. I asked Dr. Seeley about carbon pricing and about the work he did with the CDM. My daughter hates it. My daughter calls it trading and pollution. Because there are a whole bunch of people that don't think that markets have any role to play in pollution abatement. I'm on the other side. I believe that markets do have a role to play and that they help countries find the least cost to mitigate. It was the Americans that actually came up with this to, to solve acid rain. It was uh, George Bush Sr. that started this thing of cap and trade on sulfur dioxide. And that has been a proven success. So under the Kyoto Protocol, there was a flexible financial mechanism called the, the Clean Development Mechanism, which, uh, yes, I was on the executive board of that for, for about eight years. And I was a chair of that board. And uh, what happened there was that the developed countries took on commitments, legally binding commitments under the Kyoto Protocol to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by around 6% below 1990 levels by 2012 under what was called the first commitment period. And the second commitment period actually runs now from 2012 to 2020. And these developed countries are allowed to buy carbon credits from developing countries. And how are these carbon credits created? By, the, by developing countries doing renewable energy projects or energy efficiency projects to uh, reduce the amount of, of greenhouse gases that they are emitting. As a result of the CDM, we've estimated that the CDM has facilitated over $200 billion of investment in developing countries, has saved the, the developed countries billions in dollars of, of mitigation costs. It has worked in the past, and there may be other ways that we can approach the carbon pricing. I know a number of countries are now looking at carbon taxes as, as perhaps a more efficient way to put a price on carbon than the actual trading of, of units. Dr. Silly finds himself on the front lines of climate change. Low-lying islands in the Caribbean are already experiencing significant changes with many more projected. I asked Dr. Silly what climate change looks like right now in Barbados and other Caribbean islands. Well, we're already seeing coral bleaching events this year and last year that destroyed copious quantities of, of, of coral. We are seeing sea level rise at around three millimeters per year, and that rate of sea level rise is accelerating. We're seeing more category four and category five hurricanes. We're seeing a, a complete disruption of our hydrological cycles in plain terms. The rain is not falling the way it fell in the past. Our farmers are recognizing that. We're losing our fish stocks. The fish are migrating away from the warmer waters. We're seeing a multitude of impacts right now. I, I remember looking at a study that was done back in 2010 by the UNDP that, that looked only at sea level rise and how that would impact on the tourism infrastructure that we have here in the Caribbean. And those numbers are horrendous. We will lose a vast majority of our high-end tourism amenity. And to replace that is going to cost up to 50, 60, 70 percent of GDP. It's going, to, it's going to become impractical, quite frankly, to replace that lost infrastructure, airports, seaports, uh, etc. This is not good news for us on small islands. That is getting hotter and it's getting drier. In my neck of the woods, that's the Southern Caribbean region, it's becoming fairly obvious to us that our summers are getting hotter, our winters are, or quasi-winters are getting uh, warmer as well. 
our dry seasons are getting longer. We are experiencing more more frequent drought. The rainfall that we are getting is more intense, uh, but less frequent. And, and that's impacting our, our ability to store that precious fresh water. Dr. Seeley outlines severe risks with devastating impacts on island dwellers. What happens when these islands become unfriendly for the inhabitants? It's becoming absolutely clear that for some small islands, the low-lying atoll-type states, like some of the islands in the Bahamas, some of the islands in the Pacific Ocean, they're facing an absolute physical existential threat. That sea level rise coupled with uh, storm surges and extreme weather events, uh, loss of, of their coral, will will mean that those islands will will cease to be viable human settlements and that they will have to migrate away from those islands. Other other islands, larger ones, those with, with, with more mountainous interiors, yes, the, I can see internal migration occurring, internal displacement occurring, but, but others will just be completely lost. In hearing Dr. Seeley talk about problems and solutions, I am reminded of the creativity I often see in engineers. I think engineers, we solve problems. We're trained to be problem solvers. As far as, as, being, as being creative, I, I draw upon both an, an art, artistic side of me, I, I suppose, or a visionary side of me, and the, and the, and the practical or pragmatic side of me uh, as well. If those, if those two sides can come to a consensus, then I think we have a, we have a fairly elegant solution to whatever problem I'm, I'm facing. I'm an eternal optimist. I think I have to be in the job that, that, I am, that I'm in. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm relatively uh, optimistic that, that mankind is going to recognize the urgency of the situation and we're going to put all of our ingenuity to, to bear on this and, and that we're going to solve this problem. The glimmers of hope that I have are the Paris Agreement itself. I think the Paris Agreement in, in 2015 was historic. We now have to implement that. I think divestment away from fossil fuels and, and those, those companies that are recognizing a low-carbon future is the way to go I think that provides um, a glimmer of, of, of hope as well. Dr. Hugh Seeley started on a path back in the early 1980s. His interests, passion, and training shaped his career. Another contributing factor has been the world around him with its growing and changing needs. We live in extraordinary times. As young people consider what they want to be and do with their lives, climate change is taking center stage in all of our lives. At the recent Citizens Climate Lobby Northeast Regional Conference, I spoke with a ninth grader about her first steps in forging a path in the world. Meet Audia Samba Kui. A 14-year-old high school student, Audia studies at Springfield Renaissance School in Massachusetts. Adia has big ambitions. She is speaking out about climate change. She's currently working on a comedy routine to help people better understand global warming. I asked Adia about her role on this new and changing planet. So, as you can tell, I am pretty insignificant in this world, <laughs> at least as far, like, in my viewpoint, just, you know, a 14-year-old black girl just living on this earth. But... 
one of the part the points that I hit in my show that like informing people about this gets them more interested in it and informing it in a way that makes them feel like they can relate to it. It makes the idea of climate change more tangible and realistic that something they can like reach out and grab instead of something that's far away that you won't bother putting the effort and time into researching. How does it happen? Out of all of the many issues demanding attention, how did Adia Samba Kui get tangled in climate change? It actually started very recently, in December 2016, in her environmental science class. Each year, the students organize a debate about climate change. This year, though, something was different. For the first time in like her four years of teaching, she realized that we all came to the consensus that climate change is real. So it's going to be a pretty tepid, like boring debate. <laughs> so after we had the conversation, we ended up having the debate for, you know, an LT grade. And we decided, like, what could we do with this information? We're not just going to sit here or just let it like, dissipate and waste away. So we decided to use it and put it into good use. The students held the debate anyway to get practice. Then they decided to try other climate-related activities. They used social media to connect with their peers and the public. Some students made a climate documentary. And Adia? I'm interested in comedy, journalism, and presenting and performing. So I decided to do like a John Oliver, John Stewart kind of talk show about different topics and the first episode was global climate change where I dissected global climate change I mentioned carbon fee dividend which is a way to financial look at global climate change and how to end it or at least slow it down and eventually it all built up to this rally that we had and where we invited members of a local politics such as a councilman we invited two state reps and the rest of the high school at this school-wide event, the students screened their documentary. They also gave presentations to get people engaged in climate change. And then I ended the uh, the rally with a speech that I wrote, just kind of brought it together of why we should care about climate change. Audia sees connections and interconnections on a local and global scale. Most important thing that I hit in my speech was the idea of how it affects different people, impoverished neighborhoods, people of color who are less likely to receive help from the government or when they're affected by climate change, uh, issues like the Dakota Access Pipeline, just events like that and how they really shape our nation. And then we also talk about local issues. For example, there are a lot of asthma sufferers that happen to go to Renaissance and they're affected since we live closer to a factory. And so that's why one in six black kids are more likely to uh, get asthma versus one in ten overall. So just events like that will just the intersectionality of different issues like social justice and environmental justice come together, and it was just one really cool, 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 cool end result. <laughs> this passion for climate action is a new development in Audia's life. She's learning quickly about some of the very issues that Dr. Hugh Seeley has been working on in the Caribbean for years. She's also very patient and compassionate towards people who are aware of climate change, but not yet engaged in doing anything about it. At one point in my life, I was definitely one of those people. I believe that it existed, but I didn't have the initiative to push forward. And like during the conference today, when they talk about don't talk about the future because it's far away and people don't tend to think about it, but think about when you were younger and what you wanted to happen. But I also think about what's going on right now with people who are already affected by climate change, who are regressing in like developmental changes because of torrential storms and hurricanes 
Haiti and then the island of Dominica that were, that was affected by a hurricane and they were sent back over 20 years in developmental gains because of how powerful the storm is like we shouldn't have to worry we shouldn't have the future be like the, our main focus because climate it's happening right now global climate change it's happening right now not in the distant future but now people like Dr. Hugh Seely, Audio Sambaki and you dear listener, are doing your part and trying to figure out what your part is in all of this. We all have roles to play on our new and rapidly changing planet. There is plenty of work for all of us to do. And I'm interested in your story. What roles do you see yourself playing? What factors, people, and experiences influence you in your climate work? Drop me a line. Share your thoughts with me. You can reach me by email, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now it is time for the art house. We once again go back to the future. We travel 150 years to the year 2167. Climate historian Dr. Timothy Meadows reminds listeners of the amazing accomplishments brought about by the climate generation. From the years 2014 to 2050, that's five zero, millions of climate action figures did their part to take on climate change and create a better world. In this segment of That Day in Climate History, Dr. Meadows reveals the important role three engineers played in adapting to climate change. Oh, and as an added bonus, you will hear what they will advertise 150 years from now. I am Timothy Meadows. It is Friday, April 24th, 2167, and time for that day in climate history. The 21st century was the golden age of celebrities. There were hundreds of colourful personalities in the worlds of cinema, television and music. Celebrity chefs, home decorators and fashion designers with their colourful lives delighted and distracted the public from the growing fears and realities of a changing planet. The most unlikely celebrities to emerge in the late 21st century were three engineers known as the Three Beans. The media dubbed them the Three Beans because of their unorthodox and inventive use of beanbag technology. Pierre Temblay was a civil engineer from Canada. Marcela Aguilar contributed as a structural engineer from Mexico. And Sunday Mwanamwambwa was an environmental engineer from Zambia. These three were responsible for some of the most ambitious and creative building projects of their time. For example, their elegant and functional flood walls built in 2028 in Lower Manhattan protected the city from rising tides and storm. With these walls, the three beans also built community. They included whimsical benches designed into the levees. These created spaces where friends or strangers chatted. Large, low, round structures not only stored emergency supplies, but also served as tables where families gathered for reunions, business professionals met, 
and activist organized. The Three Beans also designed thousands of projects throughout Southern Europe, Northern Africa, and the Pacific Islands. They used inexpensive materials to build shelters for disaster relief and permanent structures to withstand extreme weather. The Three Beans also provided endless entertainment with their flamboyant fashion choices. They often wore matching outfits. Their lively interactions in public and the festive atmosphere they generated wherever they went kept them regularly in the news for nearly 30 years. During the Parisian flash floods of 2045, they stood in front of the Louvre. There, Pierre Tremblay famously cut off his and his fellow engineers' trousers exactly two centimeters below the knee. They then dashed into the famed art museum. They brought with them their patented, inflatable, waterproof containers, thus saving priceless pieces of art. What were once called pirate pants became the fashion craze forever known as Le Coupe de Pierre. Wherever they went, the three beans injected play and beauty into their innovative and highly effective adaptation designs. On this day in 2167, we remember that day in climate history. Climate History is brought to you by GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on disaster insurance. Ask about our apocalypse plan. As you can tell, I like to have fun with serious material. I think it's critical, actually. And I'm very interested in storytelling. And that's why I'm excited about the second half of the program, where you will meet Aaron Thier. Aaron is a novelist. He wrote the book Mr. Eternity. The book takes place over a thousand years with one character, Daniel Defoe, who doesn't seem to be able to die. As a result, he's a witness to so many things that happen in the world around him from the year 1500 to 2500. We're also going to hear from Eileen Flanagan. Eileen is involved with making the world a better place. And if you're a change agent, someone who wants to affect legislature, affect your community, you're going to want to listen to what Eileen has to say. She outlines for us the four different roles that change agents have traditionally taken. Rebel, advocate, helper, organizer. You'll probably hear a little bit about what you've already done, the sort of roles you've taken, and we'll take on more roles. I'm your guest host, Peter Sintoscano. It's a pleasure being with you today on Spirit in Action. It's great to have Peterson Toscano sitting in for me on today's Spirit in Action program. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production website, northernspiritradio.org. All kinds of links and info there how to connect with Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio, for example, and you can listen to and download our entire 11 and a half plus years of programs. Remember to post a comment when you visit, and there's a donate button, which is essential and crucial, as our only funding stream for this full-time work comes from you, our listeners, not from companies, not from governments, but from you. But start by supporting your local community radio station. So essential, so valuable, and so local. Now, back to this week's host for Spirit in Action, Peterson Toscano. 
These days, lots of people in the USA and beyond are looking for ways they can change systems and policies and laws. We see an increase in protests, marches, vigils, and disruptions in town hall meetings. People are meeting and organizing. But how do we figure out what are our best approaches to take when confronted with big problems that require big changes? To get some perspective on this, I sat down with Eileen Flanagan. Eileen is a writer, a social change teacher, a Quaker, and an activist. She currently teaches the course, We Were Made for This Moment. Online and in workshops, she trains people on how to be effective in their advocacy and activism work. Eileen told me about Bill Moyer. No, not the PBS personality. This Bill Moyer was an engineer who then dove deep into social change movements. He then spent much of his life leading trainings around nonviolent direct action. He also identified and taught successful strategies for bringing about social change. Eileen shared with me some of Moyer's teachings about the roles we might take when seeking to change the world around us. And he found that there were four roles that showed up over and over again. And the names we've given them are helper, advocate, organizer, and rebel. And they show up in all kinds of ways. And the way to think of it is really what is their orientation? So a helper's orientation is what can I do to make things better without messing with the system? So if you're concerned about climate change, a helper might insulate their home, put solar panels on, maybe do that in their congregation, try and live a low-carbon footprint life. That sort of thing would be attractive to someone who's naturally a helper. An advocate takes the role of trying to use the tools of the system to change things. So lobbying, using lawsuits, trying to convince elected officials and people in power to make decisions, essentially using the tools of the system. In contrast, a rebel uses disruptive tactics. They don't do letter writing. They don't do lobbying. Instead, they do protests of various kinds. In my tradition, we usually use nonviolent direct action, targeting a decision maker, maybe a corporation, and trying to get them to change a policy through consistent troublemaking. The fourth role is called the organizer. And in some ways, the organizer is the trickiest because They can use different kinds of tactics, but the thing that makes someone an organizer is they are oriented toward their group, toward their community. So, for example, someone who says, let's get our congregation together and see what we can do together about climate change. That's a very organizer way of thinking about it. And the group might decide to insulate the church, or they might decide to, you know, go lobby together, or they might take up a rebel tactic the focus of the organizer is what what will our group do. So this shows up again and again in different kinds of social change. If you think about the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks was the rebel. She got arrested for refusing to move on the bus, but there wouldn't have been a big thing if it hadn't been for the woman who stayed up all night mimeographing leaflets saying, let's all boycott the buses on Monday. She played the organizer role. She got people out. 
The advocate role was played by the NAACP that filed a lawsuit against the Montgomery bus system. And then helpers were the people who drove people. The ordinary citizens of Montgomery and the African-American community walked to work for over a year in order to put pressure on the bus company. They wouldn't have been able to do that without the helpers who came and gave people rides and things like that. One thing I found really helpful about the four roles is to realize that organizations play a niche, but then each organization needs in some way people who have these different strengths. So even though my group, we have helpers, and they're the people who bring cookies to the meeting, and boy, are we glad that they're part of us, right? If we do civil disobedience, we need people who are thinking about taking care of people and things like that. So there's an individual level to finding out what are your gifts and proclivities that you can bring to the movement. Organizations are most effective when they pick one. Uh, an organization that tries to play all four roles is probably going to be less effective because they're jumping around too much. I want to bring another voice into this conversation. Amani Thurman is a college freshman at the University of Delaware. Amani is passionate about many issues. He is sensitive to the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. This is in part because his mom is a lesbian. He's also very concerned about climate change. In the past, Amani has taken on the rebel role as a protester. The day we spoke, though, he wore a business suit. We were in Washington, D.C. one week after the election of Donald Trump. For the first time in his life, Amani lobbied members of Congress. He joined over 300 Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers who have relentlessly built relationships with lawmakers in their pursuit for climate solutions. Amani explains that sometimes being a rebel is essential. He's also seeing the value of the advocate role. I've also been in protests as well, and I can understand that aggression. There's positions where you want to get angry, and in some sense it's necessary, I think, to get angry and get action. But also I'd say, like, this experience lobbying is a point to practice your citizenship. Instead of grabbing attention about a subject, also influencing the people that will sign and put into law and legislation what you really need in a country. That day, Amani spoke with both Democrats and Republicans in their congressional offices. I asked him how he and his fellow volunteer lobbyists were received. I don't think I came in contact with anyone that was denying the progress or the points that we were moving across. I think in my productive meetings, there was a layoff for conversation. And it was and it was brought to my attention like by these people that were having meetings with us that they wouldn't have it if they didn't have any kind of inclination or you know, desire to maybe even talk it out. So I met with three Republicans and they all were open to conversation. In a lot of scenarios, a lot of these uh, Republican offices weren't even ready for this election. A lot of them had prepared for the latter, which is really interesting. A lot of them were kind of confused about like the result of the election, and they were open to, to change, which was really interesting, which was really interesting. Changed my view a lot. Amani and I spoke about identity and the importance of telling our stories to lawmakers and their staff. Amani talks about his mom and his concerns about LGBTQ rights. He also comes to this new lobbying work as a young black man. I want to be a voice of the people that I've grown up with. I want to be a change for the world. I want to be what will be occupying the population 
I look a little bit older than I am, so I'm 18 years old. I mean, I, I'm also black, which is which is something that I, I've, I've struggled with identifying with, and and it's been it's been really interesting to like remember, like oh, I, I represent a minority. The day I spoke with Amani, many climate advocates were still trying to make sense of the election of Donald Trump and what it means for their work. Amani, though, was brimming with hope. His experience of speaking directly to people in power inspired him. The citizens, and especially the kids, we are in a position where we can have a lot of voice. This is the time to determine our future. There's a lot of fervor expressed about the climate. I think this is this is a time now more than ever to just say, like, look, we're citizens. To the people that are going to be writing legislation about where the world's going to be going. I have an opportunity, and, and the people I know have an opportunity, and like I know, I just know some. I mean, we're all kids. I, I mean, I, and I have to. I don't want to devalue the points I make. I feel like I could be important, and I and I feel like I am important, and I feel like the people I'm amongst are important, and I'd love, I'd love for that to be voiced. And there's, this is a perfect opportunity. Amani's hope is contagious. Still, news stories abound with bad news about climate change. We're hearing about more droughts, floods, animal extinctions, exploding insect populations, and melting polar caps. Politically, people are uncertain what will happen next. Well, I have some good news to share with you that is not getting much media coverage. First, there is a rapidly growing movement among American college and high school students The Put a Price on It campaign is getting lots of traction. I also heard about a group of over 300 high school students in Utah that quickly formed. They've been lobbying their state government to issue a resolution that echoes their concerns about climate change. All over the U.S., students and administrators from dozens of college campuses are talking about their next steps and how they can promote action. The Gibson Resolution, which we've talked about before on the show, is a statement by Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. This resolution will be reintroduced this session. It will include even more Republicans this time around. There is also a bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the U.S. Congress, and that caucus is up to 26 members. Finally, we have this bit of very big good news. Earlier this month, the Climate Leadership Council revealed itself to the world. This is a group of Republican bigwigs who recognize climate change as a risk and that human population is fueling it. They come armed with solutions, including pricing carbon. The group includes big names, including former U.S. cabinet members. These include George Shultz, James Baker, and Henry Paulson. The Climate Leadership Council has gotten a lot of press. They seek to provide a path forward to address climate change during the Trump administration. If the U.S. is going to address climate change from a federal level, Republicans must be on board. The pieces are coming into place that will make this easier to happen, much easier than it was a year ago. You can find out more about the Climate Leadership Council at their website, clcouncil.org. That's clcouncil.org. If you want to know more about the Put a Price on It campaign, visit climatesolution.com. 
That's climatesolution.com. To learn more about the sort of work that Amani Thurman is doing as a volunteer lobbyist, visit citizensclimate.org. That's citizensclimate.org. Finally, you can learn more about Eileen Flanagan at her website, eileenflanagan.com. Recently on Citizens Climate Radio, I spoke with author Aaron Thier. Aaron wrote the book, Mystery Eternity. When talking about climate change, of course, people are very concerned about fact, and there's been controversy over facts, and people have questioned the facts of climate change. In writing and in fiction, there is fact and there is truth. And what I find so interesting about the characters in this book is they're not always factual. They don't remember what happened so well. They don't have all the records of history. But although they don't have the facts right, there's real truth to what they're saying. Well, I suppose you say I, I never have to have any of the narrators make what seems like an editorial observation about, about climate change, about the changes from one section to another. The structure of the novel does that for me, I hope. And so the narrators are simply free to say the most absurd things about their world. And, and we sort of always know, well, I hope we can distinguish fact from fiction. This is not an essay. It's an attempt to get at a deeper truth. Okay, so why don't we just dive right in? And hear a little clip from the year 2500. We learn about Daniel Defoe, and we hear about their theories about how the climate got so warm. We issued into the camel pen, and there was Daniel Defoe. It was the first time I cast eyes on him. He had a superannuated cat named Christopher Smart, who was like a gray carpet with teeth. And he was handsome, and there were lights in his eyes. But his chief appeal... And the reason for my father's interest in him was that he was said to be 1,000 years old. This was not impossible if you consider that he came from the desert. In very dry air with abundant sun, meat will cure before it spoils. And therefore a human being which is made of meat could theoretically live forever. The marked contrast was that in St. Louis, which was frequently ravaged by pestilences like Nevada fever, even rich people lived only 50 or 60 years. Poor people were lucky to survive into their 30s. If he's as old as he says, my father instructed, he would have known the glory of the United States. He was speaking modern English, and it was an astonishment when Daniel Defoe responded in the same language. His accent was untraceable. He said, don't talk to me about glory. Those people were out of their minds. They only cared about whale oil. They lived in tents called wigwams. Their method of gardening was to explode chemical bombs, which killed everything. My father said, we know about oil. We have books and prospectuses in the palace. But I knew he had not read a prospectus in years. It wasn't only whale oil, said Daniel Defoe. It was fossilized oil, too. They pumped it out of the earth and drank it like it was banana beer. They pumped so much out of the ground that the land began to sink, and that's why it seemed like the seas were rising. They also made a special train oil from the fat of a seabird called the Great Auk, which was the national bird of the United States. Train oil made the economy boom, but it also caused global warming because it released all the heat that would otherwise have stayed inside the auks, which were arctic birds and very warm inside, in any way extremely numerous. This was not true. It was a feast of lies. However, my father devoured it, and I think this marked the sea change for him. 
The narrator of that section, Princess Jasmine, is probably one of my favorites. Although I love them all. And I really like this character, Jam, in the year 2200. Aaron will tell us about Jam and where he comes from and what he's all about. And then we'll hear directly from the character. In general, as a kind of travelogue, this young man kind of sail, he sails down the East Coast with Daniel Defoe, who points out various features of the United States and re- remembers things in his idiosyncratic way. In generally speaking, it's about this, this young man trying to wake up from the American dream, I guess, and, and come to terms with the fact that he is poor and staying poor. There's no path for him. The cities of the Atlantic coasts are sort of half underwater. By 2500, they're, they're all underwater and they're gone. Uh, But here things are in flux and we see things kind of falling apart. It were just another morning, nothing unusual, same headache, same sadness, same poverty. But suddenly I was so tired of it all. Suddenly I couldn't stand it. I had never been out of Boston. I had never thought of leaving. But when I seen the boats, yachts, ships headed God knows where to New York, to Baltimore, suddenly I were asking each captain, was he hiring? One captain told me, yes, he were hiring, yes, and this were how it happened. Strange thought, you could say I were gone ten years because one night I were drinking corn whiskey and in the morning I walked down to the water and not up the hill as I did on other days. These are what is called vicissitudes. I remember it were a cool day, light breezes, long shadows. I wore my sweatshirt even, it were so cool. It were January, the year 2200. It had just begun a new century. My name, it were Jam, it still is. It were never Jim, as some think. I were ignorant of yachts, yet sails, waves, winds, the sea, and for many days my only concern were learning the ropes. It were truly learning the ropes, not just an expression, for there was ropes to pull on. I were learning which ones. It had an old sailor who taught me. They called him Old Dan. Good gravy, said Old Dan. You don't know nothing. I admit it were the truth. In Boston I had got my money selling salvage, plastic, fruits, whatever I could find, but I had never learned no true skills. I had never learned to sail. So I've read Aaron's book about three times now. It's very playful. And as you can see, it also gets serious. And it actually gets quite profound at times. In reading it more than once, I began to notice references are repeated in the different time periods. For instance, both cashew wine and camels come up a lot. Uh, well, cashew wine just seemed really delicious to me. You know, the, the cashew nut is is not a... I don't know if it's actually the seed. Maybe it is the seed. It grows on the top of this fruit. And then there's this accessory fruit, which is said to be delicious, but I've never tasted it. So it was this, uh, you know, it sounded like this wonderful thing to me. Um, also, if you say you're, you're drinking cashew wine in St. Louis in the year 2500, it's, there's a, you know, a, a moment of defamiliarization, I hope. Camels have always been part of these kind of utopian schemes. They successfully introduced camels to the Australian outback, and there were plans to introduce camels to the American West also uh, that I think were less successful. But that might have been because Americans you know, hate camels for some insane reason. Who knows? Uh, but camels are these marvelous creatures, and, and uh, camel milk is said to be very nutritious, and it seems like in the in the time to come, when, when the West goes to desert and so on, uh, a creature that will give you milk and doesn't have to drink any water ever can get all its water from vegetation. You know, that seems like a great, a great thing to get behind. In the novel, we learn that Daniel Defoe is on a great quest. 
He's not looking for fame, fortune, or riches. He's in search of Anna Gloria, his great love. Still, riches do come up in the different time period. What's interesting is in the past and in the future, what's valuable is very different. Jam tells us a bit about what he finds valuable in the year 2200. Old Dan, however, he cared nothing for riches. He were after another kind of riches. He were after a woman. She was called Anna Gloria. She was his long-lost love. I thought of pearls, too, and rhinestones and gold jewels, plastic. I were carried away by this dream of riches. I used to lie in my berth thinking of the rich men in Boston which had motored boats and drank clear water out of plastic bottles, a fresh bottle every day. It had semi-trailers that delivered them boxes of fruit, vegetables, bread, butter, milk, oil, cream. The truck were cold so this food didn't spoil. The rich people could have whatever foods they like any time, any day. They was like kings. Their houses was cold also. It were called air condition. It were an old, very expensive technology. You run it off sun panels or you run it off electricity if you can pay the carbon tax. It were a terrible thing, electricity, air condition, trucks and the rest. It were the cause of all our ills. It were the electricity plus motor vehicles plus factories plus cows caused climate warming, they said. However, I did not care. I wanted very much to be rich, to lie in bed shivering, drinking water from a plastic bottle. It would taste so sweet. What did I care about climate warming? I would have air condition. I would have sun panels everywhere, on my cars, on my gazebo, on my dog. I would have a plastic bathtub. I would pay the carbon tax without a care. I would be so rich. Aaron writes about extinctions. They come up in strange in-and-out ways throughout the novel. He'll reference carrier pigeons. He referenced the great ox. I didn't actually know a lot about the great ox, but about the same time I read Aaron's book, I met Kay Kramer. She's local to where I live. Kay is concerned about climate change and just joined the Citizens Climate Lobby Group. She wrote an article for the newspaper about an experience with a story and how reading this story as a young person changed the way she views the world and has given her a lifelong passion. This is what Kay wrote. After all these years, I remember how I felt as a sixth grader reading a library book. It told the story of the very last great ox. Black and white like penguins and almost three feet tall, this flightless seabird nested in Iceland, Greenland, and other North Atlantic islands. Back then, most people didn't believe an animal could ever go extinct. They never set quotas or monitored the flock. I got to the last page of the book and learned that on July 3rd, 1844, three hunters set out to collect specimens for a merchant. They strangled to death the very last mating pair. The pair were incubating an egg. One of the hunters crushed this egg with his boot. He was unaware that his was the final act that led to the extinction of the great auk. I sat holding the book and cried. The story has stayed with me for life. Stories have the power to move us emotionally and move us to action. So I asked Aaron, why did you write your book? And why now? When it becomes a story about climate change, how do you tell that story? I mean, for example, a story about malaria. 
is not going to be a story about the life cycle of the malarial plasmodium, right? Uh, or if it is, that's going to be a metaphor. Uh, what you're really talking about are the, the real-world manifestations, you know, the, the impact on, on human experience and so on. And with climate change, the issue is that this is a process, an enormous Earth-sized process unfolding very rapidly in geological terms, but still at something like the pace of a human life. And humans are so good at ignoring things and forgetting things, just as a matter, I think, of psychological preservation in a way. So how do you communicate a sense, a sense of emergency, a sense really that this is what you're talking about? You can learn more about Aaron at his site, aaron-theer.com. That's spelled... Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Thier, T-H-I-E-R, Aaron-Thier.com, or just search for Aaron, Mystery Eternity. You will find him and the book. That is all the time we have today on Spirit in Action. Thank you for joining me, guest host Peterson Toscano. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me, radio at citizensclimate.org. And thanks, Mark, for having me on the show. You're welcome, Peterson. Thanks for sitting in for me. So much great stuff you've been doing. And folks, we'll have Peterson back in just a couple of weeks to talk to him about his new movie, Transfigurations, more of the great work he does outside of climate change. Check out previous visits with Peterson on our website and be delighted. We're so lucky to have him working for the good of both people and the planet, and I'm so fortunate to get to talk to that kind of inspirational people every week. So keep reaching for the light, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.